what does religion look like? What does it look like to you? There's probably a lot of different answers to that question depending on who you ask, a lot of different uh, ways you could even ask the question. Maybe what's a strong Christian look like? Or what does a sound church look like? Well, what does religion look like? Uh, maybe you would get answers like, well, if you attend, you know, I'm there every time the doors are open. Is that what religion looks like? Or maybe from years ago or some other religions, you have the long robes. Or as we learned in class a few weeks ago, it's the big hats, right? Remember the... Is that what it is? Maybe it's a huge building, maybe it's a steeple. What does religion look like? It's interesting, the Bible gives us several clues to that, different things, and asks some questions occasionally that you wouldn't, you wouldn't think that that answer would be it. Uh, you know, in James, he talks about, you know, what is pure and undefiled religion? And it's, that's not what I would have answered if I had been asked the question. It's doing things for people that have absolutely no way to repay you for those things. Wow, is that, is that what religion is? I thought it was all the things that we have to do in particular order and different things like that. Recently, a elderly person was talking about their grandkids. And I asked, how, how are they doing, you know, spiritually? How are they doing in Christ? And the answer was, oh, well, they're strong Christians. Oh, yeah, yeah, the boys, I mean, they lead singing, they lead prayer, you know, and they even help serve the Lord's Supper. That was the answer. We were at another place visiting a while back, and that was kind of the, the sense you got from the group. And the, and the man leading the prayer was thanking God that we were able to come together in this place to serve him. If, if this is the only place you serve God, you've missed about 95% of what the Bible says about serving him. So John talks about that in 1 John. Chapter 5 and verse 13, he says, These things I have written to you, who believe in the name of the Son of God in order that you may know you have eternal life. So what do you think the question was that John was answering? What was that question? Uh, John, how do I know? How do I know if I have eternal life? He says, well, I'm writing some things for you so that you may know. Now, unfortunately, unfortunately, you still have to do a little work with what he wrote. Now, you know, if, if everybody was saved and John was able to write, hey, you're all going to heaven, no problem, you don't have to do anything, you're all saved, wow, that would have been easy. I'm writing these things so you may know. I know. But that's not the case. So John wrote it, a lot of things, but he wrote in there some tests, some self-tests, some things you have to look at in yourself and say, do I have eternal life? And he actually wrote seven of those. Now, John wrote 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. He also wrote the Gospel of John, and he wrote Revelation. And there are a lot of patterns over those that, that are real familiar with John. One of them is the use of seven, especially when you get into Revelation. You know, you got the seven stars, seven lamps, seven bowls, thunders, uh, all those things. And he lists them as seven of this and seven of that. He does a lot of other things in sevens without telling you that there are seven of them. And that's what he did in 1 John with these tests. There are seven of those tests. 
Like in the gospel, he had seven statements about Jesus, the I am statements. I am the bread of life. I am the light. Seven times. Um, also, he wrote, uh, when Jesus did the miracles, like the first one, he, said, he turned the water into wine. He said, this was the first sign. And then a few chapters later, this was the second sign. And then he gave up counting. But there were seven. <laughs> he didn't go through and, and give the number on each one of them. John is also the author of the L words. And can you guess how many? Three. So, okay, it can't all be perfect. Maybe, maybe in Greek they were seven of them. I don't know. <laughs> no, in Greek they wouldn't even have started with the letter L. Uh, but he talks about the light, the life, and the love. And he really incorporates that into 1 John and these tests even. There's a lot of that information or a lot of those ideas that are brought into there. So these seven tests all start with a similar phrase. If you say, or one may say, or if someone says. So you can find all of those in the book of 1 John based on that. And those are tests. We look at those and say, uh, what are the answers to these that will give you a pretty good idea of where you stand if you take these tests? So if you don't like tests, John wrote some other words that you could read <laughs> that will help you in that way as well. But these are the things that he wrote there. In 1 John chapter 1, and in verse 6, he said, The one who says he abides in him, If I go to chapter 1, it'll say a different thing. If we say, <laughs> if we say we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. I'll tell you something else John speaks a lot about in this, and that's lying. A lot of these are going to have that uh, idea. You're either doing this or you're lying to yourself or somebody. But if you say we have fellowship with him and yet we walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. I want to point out one thing here. He said if you're... Say you have fellowship, and yet you walk in the darkness. That idea of walking, we need to be walking in the light. That is our general path, right? In the light, I think that's the same if your path is in the darkness. He didn't say if you slip and fall off the path once in a while, then you're a liar. He said if you're walking in darkness and you've given no regard to God at all, even though you say that you have fellowship, then you're a liar. Moving on to verse 8. If we say that we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves. We're lying to ourselves. And the truth is not in us. But if we admit that we have sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us and to cleanse. So the second test, if we say we have no sin, then we're probably not in the light. The other one that goes right along with that is in verse 10. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. 
So again, we have this idea of lying, but who's the one lying here? Can you make somebody else a liar? What does that mean? If you say we have not sinned, it makes him a liar. Well, what it does is it makes you claiming that everything he said is a lie. What part, what part of the Jesus story is not true if you say you have not sinned? All of it. I mean, what, what good is it? We don't need Jesus. We don't need any of the story. We don't need the whole plan which started from the beginning of Jesus coming if we have not sinned. So you're calling him or making him a liar if you say that we have not sinned. Moving on to chapter 2 and in verse 4. The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has truly been perfected. By this, we know we are in him. We have the truth. So John talks about that. The Bible talks a lot about the truth. The truth. I heard someone the other day was going through some of these terms on this, and I found it really interesting. They mentioned when it talks about uh, Jesus talking to those that are of the devil, you know, he's the father of lies. That the word, I'm told, is singular. He's the father of the lie. Jesus is the truth. The devil is the lie. You have one or the other in your, your choice there. The one who says, I have come to know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. The truth's not in him, but whoever keeps his word. Now look at the order of this. Whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has truly been perfected. I think we often try to look at that as the other way around. We need to keep all the commandments and then maybe we've been perfected in Christ. Maybe... You know, if we do so much, then we'll get in. He says, the one that keeps his commandment has been perfected. We come to Jesus, we recognize we need him, he is our savior, and then we start acting like we're in that relationship, just like the next one in, chapter, in verse 6 says, the one who says he abides in him, I abide in Jesus. He and I are really tight. We're like one person. We're the same. We have the same mind. He who says that he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. It's a relationship thing. We have, do you have that relationship that makes you want to do what Jesus wants of you? It's often being compared to the marriage relationship. And I think appropriately... There's things in the marriage relationship that we do because of the relationship. We don't necessarily have to have a marriage manual and we go down through it step by step. Okay, on your anniversary, be sure to say something because that's the rule. Make sure you get her a gift. Otherwise, in our scenario, otherwise you would automatically be unmarried. Right? That's the way we feel sometimes when it comes to our religion. 
but we have a relationship and sometimes I forget my spouse's birthday. That's not a good thing. I'm not condoning that. But that doesn't mean we're unmarried. That means I can still work and grow and do better in the future in that relationship. I have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And because of that, I want to act in a certain way. I want to act the way he wants me to act. Those commandments that he gives, those things he says, here's what I want from you. And I work towards those. But we are not all in the same place. We are not all, those that are married, are not all in the same place in our marriage relationships, right? Some young couples that are married, they're still working through those things about anniversaries and birthdays and what, what things are important to the spouse and what things are not. But you work on that relationship because you love that, because you have that relationship. Unfortunately, I think at times we want to impose those things on other people. It's like, hey, well, here's my relationship. Do we do that in our marriage? You know, my wife likes chocolate, so Ryan, you should buy chocolate. Is that how we do that? My relationship with Jesus makes me want to do things that he wants me to do. And I look through his word and I see, this is what I'm getting from this. This is what I need to do. We may not all be at the exact same point. We sometimes try to guilt others into doing those things. It's like, why? Well, why would anybody not want to dot, dot, dot? If I can exaggerate to make the point, we're going to start a Bible study on Tuesdays and Thursday mornings at 4.30. Well, why would anybody not want to study the Bible? We may not all be in the same place. Going on to verse 9. And the one who says he's in the light and yet hates his brother is in the darkness till now. He says he's in the light, which is one of John's L words. But he hates his brother. Now what does that mean, hates his brother? So we could try to argue that. Well, I don't really hate him. I just have a neutral feeling about him. You know, I don't love him and I don't hate him. It's just no response. That's not the way Jesus saw it. That's not the way John saw it. It was either you hated him or you did what you thought was in best interest of that person to the extent that you could do it. And I would call that loving them. There was no middle ground. There was no neutral feeling in that. In chapter 4 and verse 21, he even says, and this is the commandment we have from him that the one who loves God should love his brother also. So if you really want to you know, break it down to the commandment, right there it is. There is no neutral. It's like, ah, I just have no feelings for them. It means nothing at all. But if you say you're in the light and you don't love your brother, then you're still in the darkness. We can look in chapter 3 and verse 15. He said, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And the murderer doesn't have eternal life. So that's one of the easy tests there. Do you have eternal life? Well, yeah, I hate my brother. That'd be a big X on that one. 
I think Jesus made that clear also in the Sermon on the Mount when he's talking about, yeah, you've heard it said don't murder, but I say to you, don't hate your brother. And then he goes on to explain that. Well, what, what exactly does that look like? Doing what's in the best interest of your brother. Loving them. That's what it means to not murder, to not hate. It's interesting, too, that this is coming from John. He's writing this. Do you think John, you think maybe John grew a little bit over his time, over his years, and to the point of writing this? I think so, because I know one time when he was with Jesus, there was this one city that didn't receive Jesus. And what did he say? He said, hey, Jesus, you want me to call down fire from heaven and consume them? And now he's writing, you need to love your, you need to love your brother. And the last one's in chapter 4 and verse 20. He said, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. So all these statements start about saying something. If you say, if we say, if one says, it's in the words. But the words need to match the actions. Are the words that important? Remember when Jesus said, which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or get up and walk. Now, was he saying, which one is phonetically easier to say or tongue twister? No, he was saying, which one's easier to prove? It's easy to say, your sins are forgiven. Prove me wrong. But it's harder to say, get up and walk, because that requires some action right then and there. I think it's the same way with these things. You can say that all day long, but it's your actions that's going to determine that. There's a song, it's called More Than Words uh, by Extreme. And starting the lyrics say, saying I love you is not the words I want to hear from you. It's not that I want you not to say, but if you only knew how easy it would be to show me how you feel, more than words is all you have to do to make it real then you wouldn't have to say that you love me because I'd already know. So which would be more important to you? Somebody comes to you and says, I love you. Or somebody comes to you and says, here's a gift. How may I help you? How are you feeling today? What do you need in your life? Is there some way that I can support you? Which one means more to you? The actual help or the words? You know, and that might be a little bit hard to judge. But which would mean more to you, the words, I love you, or the actions that treat you like dirt? Now, which one? It would be pretty easy to determine what is really important. That's what John is saying here. So if someone treats you badly, they discriminate against you, they hold a grudge against you, or they do something to undermine the things that you're doing, and then say, but I, I love you. You'd have to question that, wouldn't you? Are you living the way? What, is, what does religion look like? It looks like you saying the words all the time, oh, I love God, I love my brother, I love everyone. 
or is it the actions? We may try to excuse that. Well, but you don't know, you don't know what they did. You don't know what they did to me. So that excuses me getting to not love my brother, right? You know what that does? John says that makes you a liar. Because he doesn't give any excuses or exemptions. In the Gospel of John, 1335, you know you're disciples of mine. If you love one another, again, there's one of those things. It's like, describe what a disciple, how do you know a disciple? Oh, well, they go to church all the time. They, you know, give lots of money. They do these things. And is that what seemed to be most important? We almost have to pull those things out of other verses, which are things we need to do. But the direct commands are a little simpler than that. Love one another. So you might ask, well, well then who's my brother? Oh, I can get out of this. Who, aha, who's my brother? Seems like somebody did that earlier with Jesus. Very similar thing. Well, who's my neighbor? So Jesus told the story about the Samaritan. And who went beyond the call, I guess, to help someone that he didn't even know, a stranger, and he sincerely cared about him, and he even took out his wallet for a stranger? Is that what religion looks like? I think that's what religion looks like. So I want to give you a story, a similar. What does religion look like? Who is my neighbor? Who is my brother? A friend of mine texted me about a year ago and said, Hey, my wife is in the hospital. She's on a ventilator. And she's a fighter, but she could really use some help. And I sent that out to a bunch of people. People that are total strangers to this guy. And the response was awesome. People praying, people genuinely concerned about a stranger. People even taking out their wallet and shoving money in my hand and said, here, make sure he gets this. That is what religion looks like. Actual working in us. And I know many of you followed Zach and Autumn for a long time and always asking me how they were doing. And I can tell you tonight, if you're wondering how, she, how she's doing, you can ask her yourself. Because she's here with us. God has been very merciful. Those are some tests, people, that John gives so that you can know. Do I have eternal life? Look at those things. Look at how, look at what you say compared to what you do. Look at how you love your neighbor, your brother. Answer those questions honestly. 
And you will have an honest answer to that question. Am I saved? Do I have eternal life? Do you? What's the answer to your question? How are you answering those? What does your life look like? What would somebody say if you were the example of religion? What does religion look like? And they're looking only at you. What would the answer be? If we can help you find that answer, or make some changes or adjustments or whatever it needs, we would love to do that as we stand.